Hey everybody, thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Jason Walker. I'm uh, co-founder and CEO of Waypoint Robotics. Um, we're going to talk today about uh, what we can do to um, speed up uh, adoption and deployment of robots by including the workforce in, in the process. Um, we're going to, just a little bit of context, um, the, we're going to make a case for why automation is needed. I think at this show especially people kind of intuitively get that, but there's some specific drivers that uh, I think make a difference. Um, in spite of all those pressures, uh, a lot of companies are reluctant to adopt automation, especially small to mid-sized enterprises. Um, and uh, we've really tried to focus on those customers because they've always been underserved by robotics and automation. Um, and then we're going to go into what specific things companies can do to, uh, to engage their workers and, and bring them along for the automation process. Um, something that I think a lot of people know uh, is that the new on-demand, high-mix um, overnight economy uh, is putting a lot of demands on manufacturing and on the supply chain and on distribution. Uh, so that's a, a huge driver. Uh, and in the face of that, um, increased demand and increased uh, flexibility demand. Um, it's still really hard to find good people. It's harder than ever. Um, and so most of the companies that we talk to uh, are, are uh, trying to hire more people and they just can't find people at all. And they certainly can't find and retain good people. So um, it's really difficult. And that turnover um, is a huge driver of uh, of expenses and of challenges and risks in their business. Um, and then the, I guess the, the immature or the green workforce that's constantly churning um, leads to additional safety concerns and material handling in general is uh, a huge safety concern. And we've talked to more and more companies that are looking to mobile robots to help uh, mitigate the risks and the, the physical danger that's involved with material handling. Um, forklifts in particular are a really uh, literally lethal thing in a lot of uh, distribution centers and factories uh, and an expensive thing because of that. Um, so some sort of state the obvious, the bad things that happen in the context that we just went through. Um, if you can't find enough people, you have to pay the people you have more uh, in terms of overtime. Um, work harder, hard to retain them. Um, it's very difficult to find workers. We uh, were talking to a company that spent uh, $30,000 on a career fair. They advertised it, publicized it, rented a hall, did catering, had video production, and three people showed up. Um, I don't mean they hired three people, I mean three people showed up at all to the fair. And it's that tight in a lot of markets to find help. Um, and it's very difficult to retain them. Um, and that high turnover uh, is very expensive and it's very risky. So um, there's a lot of lost revenues where there's demand and opportunities for companies that um, they're not able to capture that money while they have the chance because they can't find enough people to execute on their business plan. Um, and so there's a lot of evidence that shows that uh, robotics can actually help a lot with that. Um, the 
existing workforce uh, can get more done if they've got good robot tools they can use to, uh, to increase their own productivity. Um, the increased job security, if you have a very dynamic workload and it changes seasonally, if you have uh, a workforce that has good tools, then they can, uh, they can dynamically expand their capabilities when the need happens. And so that smooths out the employment opportunities for people who might otherwise be going through a feast or famine cycle throughout the year. Um, and that's good for everybody. Um, and then companies, of course, if they have a workforce that uh, can dynamically expand when needed using robots, then they can capture those opportunities when they have those opportunities. Um, and not leaving money on the table is critical. Um, the, uh, the safety concerns, so we just released a product called Mavic and we were a little surprised to hear that um, a lot of the interest we got for that was their primary concern was safety. Um, trying to reduce the number of forklifts that are driving around, especially over long distances in big factories or warehouses, uh, is a huge concern. Um, kind of by definition, forklifts have a big thing blocking their field of view. They're going very fast. Um, robots, on the other hand, uh, they really don't blink. You know, they're always paying attention. Um, if you're a person driving a forklift, there's an expectation that you go as fast as you can to get as much done as you can. And robots don't care. They are on a schedule. They do what they got to do. Um, and when you have uh, humans doing the things that humans are good at at the endpoints of a long run in a big warehouse, you can have them doing loading and unloading and queuing up materials. And then you can have robots uh, do the long haul to the other end and do it safely and predictably. Um, and then have humans at the other end to put the pallets away. Um, and so that is a big driver. It's a big concern that we're hearing from customers. Um, so there's all these pressures to solve problems. Um, and there's evidence that automation is a good way to solve those problems, but there's still a lot of companies that are not adopting robotics and automation. Um, and so why would that be? You've got pressure, you've got a tool, and you've got people just not using the tools. So what we've found, what we've heard uh, from our customers, well, from customers who are coming to us, is that the, um, the robots that they've always had access to, especially mobile robots, really haven't been good enough to deploy in a meaningful way because the uh, time and expense required to set those robots up and to reconfigure the robots when things change, it's such a huge barrier to entry that it's, it's just not worth it. The ROI is undermined every time you have to make a change. Um, and there are some factories or warehouses out there that uh, things never really change. They just do the same thing day in and day out. But 80 to 90 percent of the economy is comprised of uh, mom and pop operations that um, it, things change every day or every week or every month. And if you have an inflexible system that can't respond to those changes easily with the workers you already have, then it's just not worth your time to set it up because it, the, the ROI is reset every time you have to reset that. Um, and so you've got 
the expense of the systems, you've got the expense to set them up, and then you've got the expense to reconfigure them, and the logistics involved in getting IT involved and getting experts to come in from outside of the company and set them up. And on top of all that, you've got a workforce that's probably kind of looking side-eyed at the robots, worried about, you know, what does this mean for me? Um, and so that's a huge part of this. And uh, you know, we've really, when we go do demos, we invite the people who are pushing carts to, to be a part of the demo um, and make them part of the process. And in doing that, we've learned uh, a lot of valuable information about why workers are resistant to robotics coming in. Um, a lot of it's intuitive and some of it, um, you know, a lot of uh, engineers and managers, maybe they're just not empathizing with the workers and they don't think it through, um, but they understand it when you go through it. Um, if you're a worker doing a job and somebody either puts a complicated machine next to you or uh, tries to give you a complicated machine that you don't understand, that's frustrating. And that's something that anybody is going to resist. Um, if, if, you're a, if you're an elite software developer and somebody tries to make you code in some other language, you're resistant to that. And if you're a shipping and receiving clerk and somebody tries to make you use a tool that doesn't make sense to you, you're resistant to that. That's just human nature. Um, it's also human nature that when uh, anything is forced on someone, they, they don't like it. Um, they want to be involved. Uh, and when we don't involve them, it creates resistance. Um, another intensely frustrating thing for anybody uh, is when some expert comes in to set up a robot, um, and that expert doesn't know anything about the company, they don't know anything about the product, they don't know the facility, they don't know the culture, they don't know the job. And if you're a worker who's been at that company for 10 years moving materials and working with the team and working with the product and working with the facility, you know so much more about that. You might not know about that robot, but you know every other thing that's way more valuable than the robot part of it. And when an expert comes in uh, who uh, you're already resentful for for these other reasons and they're uh, thrusting something upon you um, and they don't, it doesn't seem like they know what they're doing, that's intensely frustrating uh, for anybody. Um, and it's natural that workers would worry about job security. Anytime robotics and automation shows up, it's natural that everybody would say, is, is this the robot that's coming for my job? Um, and, you know, that, that's just a fact. Um, and while it's true that robotics and automation, and there's a lot of good studies that, that prove this, uh, robotics and automation improves outcomes for for companies, for countries, for economies, uh, for uh, in terms of uh, productivity and in terms of overall outcomes, um, the amount of business that they can retain and support, the amount of growth the companies experience, all the outcomes are good except for one slice of the population. And that slice is the workers who are performing low-skill tasks. Those uh, are proven uh, by studies to be genuinely at risk for being replaced or displaced with automation. And the workers who are doing those jobs, they intuitively understand that, and everybody around them understands it. And so 
while we'd like to say that robots are really better for everybody, it's not 100% true. There is part of the population that is getting affected negatively by robotics and automation. And so if we can consider their position uh, when we're building robots, when we're deploying robots, then we'll get less resistance from them and everybody else. Um, and so at Waypoint, uh, to keep ourselves honest about empathizing with our end user, we've developed what we call the Bobby First design philosophy. And uh, Bobby or Betty is someone that we made up who's been with the company for 15 years and uh, the, the company would love to clone Bobby. Um, Bobby would probably, probably love to be cloned. Um, and they know everything about the company, know the people, the culture, the company, the facilities, the products. Um, they know all of those little things that make them great at their job and it makes them valuable. Um, and so when we design our products, we think about what works for Bobby, what will not work for Bobby, what does Bobby need, what does Bobby not need. And when you want to win an argument at Waypoint Robotics, you say Bobby first. If the feature, the function, the capability, the product, if it doesn't work for Bobby, if it doesn't make Bobby's robot experience better, easier, more intuitive, more natural, then we don't do it. We go back to the drawing board. We find a way to either remove that task or make that task easier so that it works for Bobby. And so at Waypoint, when we talk about ease of use and when I talk about ease of use in this presentation, I'm talking about ease of use from the perspective of a shipping and receiving clerk, not from an automation engineer or a roboticist. Our objective is that Bobby is the person who owns this tool um, because they know more about how to set it up effectively than anybody else in the world, uh, as long as they can set it up. And so um, if we can make them part of the process, if we can make them part of the deployment, part of the evaluation process, uh, then that's going to expedite adoption and that's going to reduce any resistance that workers might have. And you create a pull effect instead of a push and that's critical to making it work. Um, so some, some suggestions about how to get the workforce involved from the beginning and, and get Bobby engaged in the process. Um, we should be explaining why robots are helpful to Bobby. Uh, if I'm an assembly line worker, a dock worker, or a shipping and receiving clerk, it makes a difference why a robot is coming in to my job, into my workplace. And if you explain to the workers that, look, we have demand we can't meet. We have a for hire sign in the window for four years. Um, we're missing opportunities and we're at risk as a company because we're not competitive if we don't make ourselves more efficient and we don't allow ourselves to capture the money that we've been leaving on the table in demand that we can't meet. And so knowing the, the why of automation is really critical to getting people on board with the process. Um, when you start that process, if you can have the workers involved in the documentation of the tasks that you might want to automate, 
that's essential. Um, we find all the time, uh, not, not just in the material handling part of robotics, but in my whole career, um, there's always been situations where the managers at a company thought they knew what was happening, but they really didn't. Um, and then uh, sometimes the robotics companies will take that feedback and they'll develop their products around that information, but it's not the real information. Um, and you really need to have them telling you what's actually happening because there might be policies and procedures that maybe are written, maybe are not, maybe there was training involved, but there's hundreds of things that a person does on a day-to-day -day basis that are tiny little nuances that they've figured out how to get the job done in the most effective, efficient way, but they didn't write it down, they didn't tell anybody about it, and if you can get them involved in the process, you can capture that information and you can make it part of the evaluation process and that's gonna lead to much better outcomes instead of trying to deploy a robot that works for the theoretical case that really doesn't exist. Um, and understanding what's important to them, what part of their job they really like and what part of their job they really don't like and where, uh, where an automation tool would be most effective, um, not just in terms of productivity but in terms of quality of life those are the kinds of things that are gonna get folks engaged and it's gonna lead to more positive outcomes and better performance of the robots. Um, things to ask when you're engaging with the workers. Um, you know, what do you like about your job? Uh, you know, really honestly, um, it, it, would you rather be uh, using your brain to um, to do the thing that you're uniquely qualified for uh, on this earth? Or would you rather be pushing a cart for 20 minutes to get to the other end of a huge building? Um, when we talk to workers, when we're doing demos, uh, it's not the walking. That's not the favorite part of their job. Um, ask them what tasks they hate. We very routinely uh, interacting with workers, um, we hear what they hate and we ask them and you know, they, they usually don't like lifting heavy things. They don't like making long walks. Um, we deployed a robot where a woman was pushing a 200 pound cart seven miles a day and she did not love that. So uh, understanding in very literal honest terms, what do you love, what do you hate is key. Um, asking them what kind of tool they might like to have. Um, you may not actually get great uh, literal actionable feedback from that question because they might not know what tools are out there and they might not know what they really want. But if you ask them what kind of tool might help them do their job, it'll give you a lot of insight and a lot of context for what kind of tools you might be able to give them to accomplish the thing they want to accomplish and let them keep doing the things they love and let them avoid the things they hate. So. Um, that's a great question to ask even if the exact answer isn't the exact thing you might act on. Um, it's more information about how they see their job and how they see their work. Um, and then same kind of theme but a little different angle is you know, what can we do to make your job easier? Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, 
Each one of these things is kind of the same question, but when you ask it from a different direction, when you approach it from a different angle, you get different answers, you get different feedback, and it makes a difference. It helps you build the case in your own mind for how do I make this person's work experience better, and what can I do for them to make them more effective? Um, and then ask them if they would be part of the evaluation process for new technology. Um, and that's a really, uh, you'll notice we said, will you help us in evaluating automation technology? There's a difference between saying, hey, Bobby, you are going to evaluate this technology because you must be part of this process versus inviting them to be a part of the process. You're telling them you value their opinion and you're telling them that you want them to be part of the process. And the invitation makes a huge difference. Um, so the things that, that we've figured out um, that uh, kind of some of the answers to these questions um, and, and answers might be different for each individual company, but um, if you try to find options that don't require those outside experts who are gonna upset everybody, that's a better way to do it. Um, if you can eliminate the need for the experts uh, because the robots work better um, uh, or for any other reason, um, because the user experience is better, because it's designed for them, that's going to be a better outcome. Um, if you can find tools that are really intended for those workers who are moving those materials today, uh, that's going to be a smoother deployment. Um, you can imagine that if uh, every roofer in the world had to go to community college to know how to operate their nail gun, um, when the transition came, everybody would still be swinging hammers. The nail gun had to be simple and intuitive and automatic and effective for people to just grab that instead of grabbing a hammer. And if we look for tools like that to help those workers do the job they're doing better, that is going to ease deployment. Um, if you can involve the workers in evaluating and creating the test criteria, that's really critical. Again, you're asking for them to help, you're asking for their input, and you're writing down a test plan that says, that includes their feedback and includes their expertise. Uh, if I walk into a company, I know almost nothing as much as I try about what actually happens in the material movement. But if I can go into a situation where the, you know, the Bobbies or the Bettys of the world have uh, constructed the test and evaluation criteria based on their real world experience, then if my product is the right product based on that criteria, then we know we're going to have a very smooth, fast, successful deployment. Um, and then when you start evaluating technology, make sure you involve them. Um, anytime we do a demo, I always ask, who's moving the materials now? And how are they doing it? And can they come in and be a part of the demo? And then I have them look over my shoulder when we're setting up the robot, and we basically train them in the course of the demo. Um, and having them be involved in the setup, in the training, uh, in the evaluation of the product, and the usage of it, even in the course of the demo, they're obviously engaged. And you can see it in their face and their body language. 
at the beginning of the demo, they're like, why am I here? And at the end of the demo, they are giving us really valuable feedback. And they're communicating with their teammates and their managers and their engineering team about this is what works, this is what doesn't, this is what we need, this is how we can use it. And they routinely throw out a bunch of ideas that weren't even on the radar of the people who invited us in. So it's a very effective tool to, again, get better information, get better tools, and get better outcomes. Um, the, uh, the, the, the worker robot interaction should always be part of the evaluation process. Um, we often hear about, my favorite situation is when customers get a chance to use our robots next to other robots and actually work with them, um, because we usually tend to win those deals. Uh, when people just look on paper, it isn't really a good comparison of the experience and of the product. Um, and if the workers aren't involved in the process, and if you don't include their feedback in the evaluation criteria, and if you don't include them in the testing, and you don't evaluate their experience in setting these things up and using them and reconfiguring them, then you could easily glaze over some really critical parts of the actual uh, effort required to deploy the robots and what it's gonna be like to live with those robots. It's really pretty easy for an automation engineer to come in and uh, either have something pre-prepared or um, have a simple use case of a small area where they can quickly uh, make a map and get a quick demo going, and if they do all the work, then you really haven't evaluated the worker-robot interaction. And that is the most critical part, because that's really where the rubber meets the road. Um, the, uh, so this is kind of what, again, based on the feedback we hear from customers, uh, and particularly from workers um, that, that we're involving in our demos, uh, and, and customers where we're deploying them, Something where there's fast, simple, intuitive setup um, is critical. And if you're a 50-year-old machine shop and your work changes week to week, month to month, um, you're gonna have to reconfigure that robot pretty frequently. And if I'm a machine tender, uh, if I'm a machinist, uh, if I work in the parts depot, I do that stuff every minute, every hour, every day, and I've got a lot of muscle memory for that. But if I only have to reconfigure the robot once a week or once a month, then that is something that isn't gonna have as much muscle memory. And so if the user experience of configuring and reconfiguring that robot is one that is intuitive and it naturally leads you through the path, then you need less muscle memory. And you can use your general familiarity with other uh, user experience paradigms to reinforce what your experience is in setting up the robot. And so that intuitive setup how it feels to you the first time you lay eyes on it um, isn't critical just for the first time. It's critical for how easy it is to continue to maintain that product over time. Um, so that makes a big difference. Um, this is a, a quick video uh, that shows sort of the manifestation of our Bobby First design philosophy and us trying to hold true to all of these principles of getting feedback from the workers and uh, making an easy to deploy robot. Um, Waypoint robots uh, come with a quick start booklet um, that looks like an IKEA instruction set and it's mostly about how to open the box. 
Uh, the next step is to make a map, and there's a big green button that says make map, and then you drive it around with a, a PlayStation joystick, um, and the robot makes a map for you. And our robot is excellent at making maps. It'll make it perfectly the first time, um, which if you're Bobby, uh, you don't want to have to understand the idiosyncrasies of an inferior robot and why its navigation or its localization or its slam capabilities aren't quite as good as some others and what little detail you might have to do to get a good map. You don't want to have to edit the map afterwards. So a robot that can make a really good clean map the first time is an intuitive experience. So there's a big green button that says make map. You drive the robot around like a remote control car with a familiar interface and it makes the map for you. Uh, the next thing that happens is the dispatcher software prompts you to create keep out zones. So if there's any place you don't want the robot to go, like a loading dock or a cubicle cluster or whatever it is, you can draw those boxes in. And then the next thing to do is put down some waypoints, uh, which is as simple as either parking the robot in the place and orientation where you want it and adding a new waypoint or click on the map and uh, give that point a name. Um, then after that, you can make a playlist, which is again a, uh, a user experience paradigm that everybody already understands. You can make a playlist from, uh, have the robot go from one waypoint to another, and as fast as that, you are autonomously navigating. Um, and in our, uh, in our facility, this is our old warehouse, um, we can do that, uh, you know, and we, we could actually map that facility as 3,500 square feet in about 90 seconds. Um, so the setup can be extremely fast. Uh, you'll notice I didn't talk about calling IT um, or any other complications. It's just working out of the box. Um, the, uh, so when you're operating, so that was the setup screen, dispatcher. When you're operating the robot on a day-to-day -day basis, that should be simple and intuitive as well. Um, we kind of ripped off the user interface from an elevator with our Whistle product. Um, Whistle is a software product that's built into Dispatcher, and it's automatically configured in the background while you're making the map and while you're creating the waypoints uh, and while you're creating the playlist. Um, each individual whistle can be configured for the place where it's set up. So if you have one located in the loading dock and another one located in the parts warehouse, you can have different waypoints and missions displayed on each one of those. Uh, and it's super easy to configure that. Um, there's a menu that tells you which ones, uh, it's a list and you pick from the list for which ones you wanna have set up. And again, this is included and automatically set up in the background uh, in the process of that 15 minutes to autonomy uh, process. Um, so the big blue button is like the elevator call box. Come here, the robot shows up, you put something on it, you choose a destination and the robot goes. And it really is that simple. The, uh, a lot of things, so we have an ecosystem of products at Waypoint. Um, we have dispatcher, we have whistle, uh, we have shelves and pop modules and uh, one of the things we have is a wireless charging dock. Um, and the reason we have that is because I don't want to try to educate Bobby on 
what a deeply discharged battery is and how expensive that is and how bad it is. I don't want to have to explain to them that if you have a conductive charging system and a little bit of debris gets on the contact that it might dock and it will look like it's charging, but then it'll you know, maybe oxidize and so he has to check on it an hour later to make sure it's really charging. Like, I lost him 55 words ago. Um, it should just work. If you're Bobby and a sophisticated piece of machinery shows up on your doorstep and you're expected to interact with that robot or even own it and use it, if I have to teach Bobby about batteries and charging, I've already lost. And so what we've done with Endzone is we've created a system that's extremely reliable, it's completely maintenance free, and it's extremely resilient to slight misalignments or if somebody bumps the robot and it moves a little bit away from its dock. As long as, with this wireless charging system, and this isn't an inductive system, this is an RF uh, transmission system. And because it's an RF system, the robot needs to be, the receiver needs to be without an in, uh, within about an inch of the transmitter pod. And the alignment isn't particularly sensitive uh, in any of the axes. As long as it's within an inch or less, it's gonna transmit full power all day, every day. Uh, and it's the only type of system that delivers that kind of performance. And uh, my, my co-founder and CTO, we met at iRobot when we were working on the Roomba and the room is an amazing product and the docking system works really well, but it's a conductive solution. And when uh, oils or moisture or dirt, debris, fuzz gets on those charging contacts and it gets between the contacts on the dock, it was so difficult to get that system to work reliably and even now, uh, I believe it's, it's as good as any conductive docking solution can be. But our experience with that and the negative outcomes for our customers and the confusion of trying to explain to them uh, the importance of keeping the charging contacts clean um, and the cost to the company of, uh, of dealing with deeply discharged batteries, we decided we never wanted to deal with that again if we could avoid it. And so we've made wireless charging a priority for our products um, so that Bobby can have a better user experience. Um, being able to beam power through the air like Nikola Tesla always envisioned is awesome for a technology geek like me, but what really matters is that from Bobby's point of view, they can forget about batteries and charging. Uh, the batteries in our robots will last for seven years if they're properly cared for. They are uh, the safest chemistry. Um, Everything about the battery system is designed to be as safe and reliable as it could possibly be. And the end zone adds another layer of consistency, reliability, safety, security, um, and most importantly, Bobby doesn't need to think about it. Um, intuitive behavior, this is something that, again, if you're Bobby and you're working with this sophisticated machine, it doesn't, make sense to you that it maybe can't see a fork truck or it can't see a table. Um, most of the mobile robots in the world use a 2D LiDAR sensor for navigation and obstacle avoidance. Um, and if you're in a very well-constrained environment, that's gonna work well. 
Um, but if you're in the real world where people leave things around, uh, if there's a fork truck or an empty pallet, uh, trying to explain to Bobby how a 2D LiDAR works is a non-starter. That's never going to work. Um, and so uh, we've created our 3D perception package and our navigation system uh, with our embedded system that allows our robots to navigate in tight spaces, um, move in an intuitive way, and see and avoid obstacles in a way that, that Bobby expects. And so I don't have to explain any of the stuff I just talked about with Bobby because Bobby is just going to get a robot that behaves in an intuitive way. Um, network independence is a critical thing. Uh, you'll notice in that uh, setup video that I showed, we didn't have the IT department in there reconfiguring routers for two weeks. We didn't have meetings about whether or not we wanted our industrial equipment connected to the internet. Um, our robots are shipped with all of the intelligence and all of the equipment they need in the robot to do their job. So we have customers who operate our robots 100% air-gapped with no connection to any network at all. They pay us extra to take the radios out. Um, and the capability of a robot to keep doing its job with or without a network connection is essential because, again, if you're trying to make this easy to use for the Bobbies of the world, then uh, getting IT involved is going to add weeks to the schedule and it's going to take the entire project in a direction that's out of their hands. Um, and that's something that is going to grind uh, deployment to a halt. Um, Maneuverability, you probably noticed that our robots can move in any direction and any orientation. Uh, we have mechanomwheel robots, and we're one of the few companies that have a truly industrial grade mechanomwheel robot. Um, and the reason we wanted to do that is because the, uh, the mechanomwheels offer maneuverability that is um, it's intuitive. It, it, it moves the same way a people move. You know. If you watch me pacing around on the stage, I'm walking sideways. You know, I'm not making 90 degree turns. Uh, and when you think about an existing uh, factory or warehouse, people move through those facilities all the time uh, in a way that makes the most sense to a person. And it isn't the same way a differential drive robot works. And so having the capability to have the robot move in any direction and any orientation it makes the setup and usage of the robot a lot more intuitive and it makes it a lot quicker. It also means you can dock into work cells or into other machinery or conveyors in any orientation and that's a, a really powerful thing. Um, and then the, the other thing that is uh, almost never talked about unless it's us um, is that there's this trade-off between uh, speed and repeatability for a differential drive robot. Um, if you have a differential drive robot and you need to precisely hit a waypoint, it's going to take a very long time. Uh, likewise, if you need to have a very fast, uh, uh, hit a waypoint very quickly so you have good cycle times, you're going to have to let the robot miss its waypoint by a substantial margin so that it doesn't take so long. With a mechanomwheel robot, we don't have that trade-off. We can hit a waypoint instantly uh, and hit it precisely and very repeatedly. And so, again, if you're Bobby, 
it doesn't make sense to you why the robot, when you need it to precisely park in a work cell or uh, a conveyor next to somebody's desk, you know, why would it shuffle around for two minutes trying to precisely hit that waypoint? That just doesn't make sense. And so it's another way where we can make it more easy and more intuitive for them to get the great outcomes that they expect to get. Um, the, the last thought I want to leave you guys with is that uh, it's ROI is, um, there's parts of the ROI conversation that are really easy to calculate. Um, if you go back 10 or 15 years, robotics and automation was really simple because everybody making robots just wanted to sell you a robot instead of having you employ a person. And it's like, well, if this robot can replace this many people, then that's the math. It's that simple. Um, at this point in history, the ROI is a little more fuzzy because even if you have some kind of situation like that where you can say, well, if I can add a robot, then that's a way to hire a person that uh, I'm not able to hire. Um, it isn't just about the labor offset. Uh, it's also about how much money have you left on the table? How much opportunity were you not able to capture because you couldn't respond to that? And so that's very difficult to fold into your calculation. Um, so from a monetary standpoint, uh, all of that makes things a little more difficult on the ROI front. But then there's this other part where um, the first three points on this list are things that are very easy to understand from a human point of view, but they're very difficult to calculate. Um, we work with a company that remanufactures automotive transmissions. And uh, I don't know how many of you have seen an automotive transmission inside, but it's one of the most complicated things on earth. Um, it is, it's ridiculous. I can't believe it works. Um, and the technicians that rebuild these transmissions are techs that know how to re rebuild dozens of different kinds of transmissions for different cars. And when they rebuild these transmissions, they do it all from memory. Um, there are hundreds of parts, filters and gaskets and ball bearings and springs, uh, all going in to these transmissions. And when they're rebuilding these transmissions, they get into a flow state. They're in the zone, and time flies. And this is the work that they're uniquely qualified to do. There aren't very many people on Earth who know how to rebuild an automatic transmission from memory. Um, and they know that's their, their value. They know that's why they're there doing that job. And there's a big clock on the wall that shows the performance of the team. And they want to rebuild as many transmissions as they can. And so they go from this state of uh, being in the zone, doing the work they love, to they finish the job. And the next thing they have to do is wrestle this 300-pound transmission off of the build stand and onto a cart. And then they have to push it across the factory, and they have to wrestle it off the cart onto the conveyor to put it into the test fixture uh, to have it dyno tested. Uh, and then they have to push the cart back, and they have to try to get their head back in the game to rebuild another ridiculously complicated transmission. And they absolutely, positively hate that part of their job. Because on a minute-to-minute -minute basis, they know it's a waste of their time and the boss knows it's a waste of their time, and the clock on the wall knows it's a waste of their time, and it's frustrating to be spending their time doing that task when they could be rebuilding another transmission. And on a day-to-day -day basis, they go home exhausted because 15 to 20 times a day, they have to fight with a 300-pound object and move it around the factory. And so they go home physically exhausted. And then on a year-to-year -year basis, 
they, they, their bodies wear out. It's exhausting. It's not enjoyable. It takes a toll. And so uh, these are things that are very easy to understand, but it's really hard to quantify. And if you have two transmission remanufacturing facilities and every other thing is equal, but that one task you can take away from these technicians, where are you going to go work? If the hardest part of our economy right now is attracting and retaining talent, and that's the number one challenge, and that's the impediment to you growing your business and capturing more opportunity, you got to have the people. You got to attract and retain those people. And if you can take away the worst part of their job and let them keep all of the best part of their job where they can do the work they value and when they can go home with more energy for their friends and family, and they can have a longer, happier, healthier career, all things being equal, which one of those companies are you going to go work for? You're going to go for the one that uh, gives you a better experience. And so if you're a company that is working uh, in those conditions um, and you can give your workers those kind of tools, it shows you're investing in them, you're going to get their loyalty, you're going to get their best work, um, and you're going to get all of the benefits of automation. So um, that's all I've got for today. Uh, if you have any questions, um, I'd be happy to take them until they kick me out, uh, and then we can talk after you do afterward if we want. Um, we're at booth 9600 at the other end of the hall, uh, basically just exactly mirrored from here. Um, and uh, we'd love to have you come take a look at our robots um, and uh, see them in person. Thank you. <laughs>